All right, take your Bibles, turn to the book of Habakkuk. Now, last week we talked about Jonah in our series on prayer, which will run through the end of the month. Talked about Jonah being a prophet who was sent to preach to the capital of the Assyrian Empire. We talked about how this empire was, was wicked, and yet in 612 B.C., the Assyrians were overcome by the Babylonian Empire. And the Babylonians were sometimes also called the Chaldeans because they were a group that occupied the, the southern part of, uh, of the empire. Now, after the Babylonians defeated Judah, uh, they carried away the inhabitants of Judah into captivity. And it was just before that happened, before Babylon took over Judah, that Habakkuk wrote this book. The first two chapters are kind of organized around Habakkuk questioning God about using uh, Babylon to judge his people. Because that's essentially what was hap happening, is that Judah had really turned away from the Lord. And uh, Habakkuk, though, knew that Judah deserved judgment, but he just couldn't see how a good God would use a more wicked nation like Babylon to do it. God makes it clear that both nations were deserving of judgment, speaking of, of Judah and uh, the Babylonian Empire. So Habakkuk's prayer that we see at the end of the book in chapter 3 is really a resolution from Habakkuk's interaction with God. Habakkuk starts with some, some heavy questions, and he ends up with a heart just full of praise and worship to God in chapter 3, and that's what we're going to look at today. Let's all stand as we take a look at this chapter. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shagonaph, hey, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear in the midst of the years, revive it in the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushion in, in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariots of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows, Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah. Again, every time Selah is mentioned, it means to pause, to, to think about this, to ponder this thought. You pierced with his own arrows 
the heads of his warriors who came into a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes my tread on my uh, he makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with string instruments. In May 2016, a Israeli man petitioned for a restraining order against, get this, against God. Apparently, the plaintiff identified as David Shoshan represented himself, uh, a court hearing in Haifa, it's a port city in the north of, of Israel. Mr. Shoshan told the court that God had been treating him, I quote, harshly and not nicely. Though no specific details were given about what exactly had happened to him to make him feel this way, the request for the restraining order was denied, and the presiding judge said the request was delusional, that the petitioner required help from sources outside the court. <laughs> I might agree with him. You know, when you read some portions in the Bible and you think about how the authors were struggling with God, if they could, you wonder whether they would ask for a restraining order against God. It's actually one of the reasons why I love the Bible. It's, it doesn't sugarcoat people's doubts, people's questions. You can read very plainly what they are struggling with. I suppose there are still some of us who think that all doubts and questions should be wrapped up in a pretty little bow at the end of the day. Well, that certainly has not been my experience with God. And I would venture to say probably most of us have not had that kind of experience with God. Like Jacob, we often have to wrestle with the angels, and we get scarred. We, we have limps or wounds that remind us of our circuitous journey with God. Uh, the struggle in this journey is depicted in the 16th century sculptor by John Lorenzo Bernini, entitled Habakkuk and the Angel. It sits in the sacred museum of the Vatican, in this masterpiece, Habakkuk is holding a, a packed bag as if he's traveling somewhere. And his movement is forward as if he's walking ahead. However, he's impeded by an angel hovering above him who has grabbed this startled prophet by the hair, almost as if he's lifting him to heaven. And I think Bernini has kind of captured something of our, of our walk with God. Some of us are very much on our own way, walking in a very different direction than God would have us walk. We have to be redirected. 
Sometimes we have to have our hair pulled. It reminds me at the end of Nehemiah, if you've ever read that, where he's actually pulling out the beards of, of some of the men in the nation. I mean, it's like crazy, but literally he's pulling on their hair. But we need to be redirected. We need to fix our gaze upon the heavens and see what Habakkuk saw, which was a, a clear vision or a reality of God, a true visage of, uh, I think, the, the triune God. That helps us to move forward, does it not? It was A.W. Tozer who said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I've read that quote many times. It doesn't deny that there are doubts. And as humans, we certainly struggle with our relationship with God. But if we expect progress in our spiritual walk, we have a responsibility, do we not? to align our thoughts with truth. Now, the good news is we can choose our thoughts. But we we align our thoughts with the reality of who God is and not veer off to some mistaken notion of God. Habakkuk, in his struggle, is asking God, why are you allowing a pagan nation judge us like this? I mean, haven't you ever thought why some people seem to get off easy and they don't don't give a wit about God while maybe others get the short end of the stick? And maybe you feel like you got the short end of the stick. Why, God, have you allowed my life to end up where it is right now? Habakkuk was thinking that Judah would be destroyed by the Babylonians and the Babylonians would get off scot-free. We read in Chapter 1, verse 13, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Some Christians may not feel like they can say those words aloud, but they sure think it. I would agree with Tozer. I think what we think about God is the most important thing about us when we have a weak or or ill-informed view of God, I believe we can be tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine, as Paul says in Ephesians. A view of God that aligns with how he has revealed himself in the Scripture and through the person of Christ trains us to interpret our circumstances through the prism of his character. That's why it concerns me greatly, the attack upon the Bible, and particularly the Old Testament, that people just keep, you know, throwing the Bible under the bus, if you will, and then we lose any perception, real perception, I should say, true perception of who God is and his character. You know, in Africa, there is a fruit called the taste berry, because it changes a person's taste so that everything eaten tastes sweet and pleasant after you eat the taste berry. Sour fruit, even if eaten several hours after the taste berry, it becomes sweet and delicious. I would suggest that nothing makes the trials sweeter than a 
a steady dose of what we might call praise fruit to God. A fruit that that praises him for who he is, a sovereign God, a holy God, a just God, a great God. We we sing his praises. We we pray according to scripture and remind ourselves of, of who God is. And this is essentially where Habakkuk ends up. Although he took a circuitous path. It's not easy. But we do control our thoughts. And we are responsible for our thoughts. I mean, just that, that thought alone, we are responsible for our thoughts. Think about that. We choose to believe lies or the reality of the power and presence of a holy God. Our view of God and by extension, our prayers, train our palate for how we will taste life. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shagonath. According to Shagonath, it's a phrase that, that most commentators think is probably a type of a song. The fact is, and we see it referred to at the end of the passage too, that this was likely a prayer made into a song form. And then he says, O Lord, I have heard. I have heard. Just stop right there and consider. Now, when, when we think of prayers, do we not think of you know, requests, petitions, but how much of our prayer time is listening? Reading the word, meditating for a moment before going on? I mean, can, can you say in your prayer time, yes, Lord, I have heard. I have heard. Perhaps it's a sweet, still voice of the Holy Spirit. Perhaps it's through the word. Perhaps it's through the circumstances, but the Lord speaks to us. So we need to listen to the wisdom from from the word and from circumstances. And of course, listening demands time, does it not? It, It demands an intentional consideration of the scripture. How well are you listening? President Franklin Roosevelt got tired of smiling that that big smile and saying the usual things at White House receptions. So one evening, he decided to kind of mix it up to see if people would, would actually pay attention to what he said in the reception line. And as each person came by and he extended his hand, he flashed a big smile, and then he would say, I murdered my grandmother this morning people would automatically respond with comments such as, how lovely, or uh, perhaps just continue the great work, not even hearing at all what he said. Nobody was listening, except one foreign diplomat. And when the president said, I murdered my grandmother this morning, the diplomat responded softly, I'm sure she had it coming to her. Listening is a skill that we have to hone in the presence of our highest authority. Habakkuk said, Lord, I have heard the report about thee, and I fear. 
Habakkuk knew that Judah would be chastised, and the judgment of God was upon Babylon. I remember at the, at the beginning of the book, he's, he's crying out for uh, divine interference, and now after a couple chapters, he's hearing God's perspective, and he can't help but be in awe and reverence. In wrath, remember mercy. Wrath is when God's holiness and God's justice meet up. Habakkuk is saying, Lord, I know you're holy, but I'm begging you also to be merciful. While you inflict judgment upon the Babylonians, don't forget to deliver your people. Yes, you're a holy God, but but be merciful. He was truly awestruck by God. Daniel Webster understood how awe-inspiring the character of God can be. At one time, Webster was considered the the greatest of all living Americans. He was an accomplished statesman, lawyer, orator, a leader of men. Twenty-five national leaders were attending a, a dinner in his honor, and while at the banquet, one man sitting next to Mr. Webster said, Sir, what is the greatest thought that has entered your mind? What a question. What's the greatest thought that has entered your mind? Without hesitation, Webster replied, the greatest thought that ever entered my mind was the thought of my responsibility to God. And as he spoke those words, he began weeping. He couldn't stop himself. He had to excuse himself from the table, gather himself to get control of his emotions. And when he returned, he spoke to the entire group for 30 minutes about man's responsibility to God. Can you imagine that speech at a state dinner today? Oh, Lord, make us aware of your holiness and our responsibilities before you. God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. Taman and Mount Paran are are sites in the region of Mount Sinai. Uh, these are referred to in Deuteronomy 33.2 and Judges 5.4, where it, it depicts these areas where, where God is active. It was Mount Sinai in which God entered into a covenant relationship with his people, where Moses was given the law. Habakkuk is remembering the promises of God that he made with his people. So since, God, you have, you have made these promises, I can assume then you're not going to destroy your people. Even though by the looks of it, Babylon is going to apply some severe hurt. Babylon has the upper hand. God's splendor covers the earth even when things look bleak. And part of the splendor is that, that God himself is truth, that God speaks truth, and the truth of his character, it, it applies to everybody, everywhere. 
Where can you go where you're away from God's promises? Where can you go where God's promises are not true? Nowhere. Where can you go where his presence does not go with us? The whole earth is full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. All of creation shows the handiwork of God. He is radiant like sunlight. Every action from his hand puts forth righteousness. Now, he can't show his full splendor has to be veiled, for no man has seen God. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. Habakkuk is reminding himself of how God has judged unrighteous nations in the past, just like he did with Egypt. Pestilence and and plagues in the time of Pharaoh. And as we gaze upon the injustices of other nations, we have to also remember that our own nation, just like Judah, Habakkuk had to remind himself that Judah was going to be judged. America will be judged too for her sins, whether it's the blight of abortion whether it's political corruption, racism, our nation is rife with sinful tendencies. Heard recently, you take, for instance, the celebrated Brown versus the Board of Education of Topeka, the Supreme Court decision in 1954 that made it unlawful to segregate students in public schools. We think that was a great decision. And indeed, maybe by itself it was. But did you know that after the Supreme Court decision to desegregate the students, one thing they didn't address were teachers and administrators. And do you know that after that decision, 38,000 black teachers and administrators lost their jobs? 38,000. That was just in 21 southern and southern boarding states. And minority hiring has not yet caught up to that decision 60 years ago. Pestilence and plague follow his heels. God will address every injustice. You may think of American exceptionalism, but let me tell you, America will be judged by God just like every other nation and every other people. We are not exempt. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. God will bring his judgment. He measures the inhabitants of the earth, and things are indeed going to rattle and roll when that happens. Nations will shake. Nature itself will bow. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Cushan is Ethiopia. Midian is the, the land east of the Red Sea. And these describe the boundaries of the Red Sea. In other words, has, has God advanced 
the children of Israel centuries before through the Red Sea. There are going to be other nations that tremble. And what he's saying is, I mean, God may judge a particular nation here, but it's going to be felt throughout the earth. But see, what, what Habakkuk is doing, he's remembering history. He's recounting what, what God has done in the past from the pages of Scripture. And his faith is being bolstered. God intervened, intervened then, and God is going to intervene now. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the, uh, the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? Habakkuk starts wondering if God will judge the unrighteous, and now he realizes that when God's judgment is expressed, nature itself cannot escape. He recalls the, the plagues on the Nile the parting of the Red Sea. God demonstrated his power, the salvation of his people, and he went to to great effort to do that. And he showed his wrath upon his captors. And if you wonder if that's ever going to happen again, just read the book of Revelation. You strip the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. Selah, think about this. In other words, by stripping the sheath, it means God is ready to judge. He has many arrows in his arsenal, meaning that he's never going to run out of ammo. He's never going to run out of time or energy in his judging. He has everything he needs to do the job right. And notice the words used in verses 4 through 9. It reminds us of some of the effects of, of God's judgment Pestilence, plague, scattered, shook, affliction, tremble, anger, indignation. And then he says, Selah, think about that. Just ponder for a moment how effective God is in his judgments. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed with raging waters. The raging waters swept on. The The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the Heads of the warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. Remember how God delivered his people from Egypt? God split the waters. Mount Sinai quaked. Nature itself bows in submission. Remember when God drove out the nations for God's people to enjoy the promised land? See, it may be hard for us to read those passages. I know many, many pastors either ignore it or deny it or decry it. But 
I'll leave it up to a holy God to take care of it the way he wants and judge. Who are we to sit there and judge a holy God and say, that's not fair? As in the days of Joshua, God provided divine intervention for his people when the sun and moon stood still. You know, it's not the military power of Israel that did this but it's the power of God that defeated the enemies of Israel. And God did all this for the salvation of his people. Will he not do the same for us? Ultimately, God delivered them from their captors. God, you delivered your people then. Do it against the Chaldeans. Striking the, striking the head of the house of evil is a reference for the Babylonian kingdom and the and the king to be struck down. God is portrayed as a great warrior leading his people to the promised land. Babylon's going to fall, and God's going to use their own weapons. No nation, no people will be exempt from God's gaze. Can the liberty of a nation be secure when we have removed a conviction that these liberties are the gift of God? Indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just, that his justice cannot sleep forever. That is not from a TV evangelist. That is from Thomas Jefferson. Google him if you don't know who he is. I hear him and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me yet. I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, there be no herd in the stalls. These are all the things that Babylon will do to people that they conquer. And then he says this, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. If America were defeated by a foreign enemy, could we say, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Could we say that? Could we say, God, the Lord is my strength? That's what Habakkuk was facing. A foreign enemy defeating the nation. Notice as Habakkuk ponders the judgment of God, he's trembling. He's physically shaken. I mean, what other appropriate response is there to a God who judges? Verse 17 is, and on, it's a, it's a reference to Babylon's reputation that plundered the lands that they conquered. It's recorded that when they would defeat an enemy, they would, they would get rid of all livestock and even the vegetation in some cases. And Habakkuk says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. How does one get from being depressed and questioning and doubting God to then praying a prayer 
like this. I don't know of other way, any other way that one can get there other than wrestling with God. It's not easy. You can't just flip a switch. And by wrestling, I mean our doubts, our questions. God can certainly take it. In going through this in one sermon, I certainly don't mean to be implying that it was easy. It's not. And many of us have serious questions about who God is and how God could allow certain things. And yet, once Habakkuk looked at who God reveals himself with his people Israel, the scriptures that Habakkuk had, he could see that. Or through oral history. And he was able to align his perspective. A newspaper on the East Coast ran the story of a woman who was driving home when she noticed a a huge truck behind her. And it was driving uncomfortably close. She stepped on the gas to gain some distance, but the truck sped up too, kind of tailgating her. The faster she drove, the faster the truck did as well. So she became scared, and she exited the freeway, and the truck stayed with her. The woman then turned up a main street, hoping to lose the pursuer in traffic, but no, the truck even ran a red light and continued his chase. And reaching a point of panic, the woman whipped her car into a service station, bolted out of her auto, and she was then screaming for help. The truck driver sprang from his truck, and instead of going towards the woman, he ran toward her car. He yanked the back door open, and there was a man hidden in the back seat. The woman was essentially running from the wrong person. And from the high vantage point, that truck driver could spot that assailant in the woman's car. He essentially was chasing her to save her. Does it not seem that our pain and our struggle, that God means to cause us harm, actually what's taking place, God is pursuing us for our own good and for his glory. When we understand who God is through the pages of Scripture, and we see that he is our strength and our joy, then our hearts can begin to fill up again. Those doubts and those questions, they're turned into confidence in a holy God 